This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Zneimer. I actually do go to the mall and I go see movies. My favorite movie right now is Wreck-It Ralph. He might sound like your everyday teenager, but Jack Andraka is anything but. He's the inventor of a simple blood test that promises to be a breakthrough in the early detection of some of the deadliest forms of cancer. He was a presenter at this week's 2013 Idea City Conference, and coming up, we'll hear a conversation I had with him backstage. Plus, do you believe in science or the Bible? Coming up, I'll talk to another Idea City presenter who says they both actually agree. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. This week, the Princess Margaret Cancer Center announced a new drug that could transform cancer care within a few years. The experimental drug is called CF400945, and it targets an enzyme that gives rise to tumors, including breast, ovarian, colorectal, pancreatic, and prostate cancers. It's the first drug of its kind, a so-called sharpshooter that's not designed to kill cancer cells, but rather to stop them from reproducing. The researchers still need regulatory approval before they can begin human trials. He's 98 years old and a former Canadian, and now Laszlo Chatari has been indicted by Hungarian prosecutors for abusing Jews and assisting in their deportation to Nazi death camps during World War II. They say Chatari was the chief of an internment camp for 12,000 Jews at a brick factory in Kosice, a Slovak city then part of Hungary, and that he beat them with his bare hands and a dog whip. Chatari has denied the charges. He was first detained by Hungarian authorities in July 2012 after his case was made public by the Simon Wiesenthal Center. Chatari lived for decades in Canada and worked as an art dealer before leaving in 1997. His Canadian citizenship was later revoked. Four in ten American adults are now caring for a sick or elderly family member. This according to a new study by the Pew Research Center. The study also found the number of caregivers increased 10% between 2010 and 2013, and that most caregivers are between 30 and 64 years old. The center says the slow U.S. economy could explain why family members are becoming more responsible for care. It's also a major issue here in Canada. We have 2.7 million caregivers who are over the age of 45 and are looking after their elderly relatives. CARP has been advocating for more financial relief for these caregivers. And finally, the entertainment world was shocked by the death of James Gandolfini. The actor is known for his assortment of roles on stage and screen, but for most people, he'll always be Tony Soprano, the conflicted mob boss at the heart of the HBO drama The Sopranos. Morning, 
Gandolfini won numerous awards for his role as Tony Soprano, and when the series ended, he worked steadily in film and on stage, earning a 2009 Tony nomination for his role in God of Carnage. This week, he was discovered after suffering a heart attack in his hotel room in Rome. He was set to receive a special award at the Sicilian Film Festival. Instead, there will be a tribute in his honor. James Gandolfini was 51. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Usually when someone develops some kind of innovation in a university lab, the university gets a piece of it, but you own this outright. How did that happen? When I came to the professor, I was 14 years old, and in the U.S., that's considered child labor. <laughs> which is a big no-no for an academic institution. So essentially what happened is they kind of snuck me through the back door. They said I was a volunteer, and I was a volunteer who conveniently got placed in that lab and conveniently had the duty of doing this research. And so that's how I got in. And since that's not in their clause that I signed, then they didn't have any rights, and they were fine with just giving me all the rights. I had the pleasure of interviewing 16-year-old Jack Andraka on stage on Friday at this year's Idea City Conference. He stumbled on an idea that could transform medicine and save thousands of lives. It happened when his mind wandered off during a boring biology class. He then put in months of hard work and went on to win the grand prize for this invention at the 2012 Intel International Science and Engineering Fair. It's a cheap, simple blood test that promises to detect some of the deadliest, most difficult-to-diagnose cancers, including pancreatic cancer. Here's more of my conversation with Jack. What really got me um, interested in pancreatic cancer is a close family friend passed from the disease when I was 13 years old. And then what happened is I really found that there's no real diagnostics for pancreatic cancer. I mean, the current gold standard is this $800 test that's 60 years old and misses 30% of all pancreatic cancers, 85 of which are diagnosed late. And that's when you have less than a 2% chance of survival. It's the cancer with the worst survival rate. So he passed away in three months, right? Yes. So what did that make you want to do? Uh, so what that made me want to do is really find a way to diagnose it since he hadn't really shown any symptoms and he was diagnosed once it had metastasized. And so that's what really got me interested in it. How did you start thinking about it scientifically? So I started thinking about it scientifically when I began to see what a pancreatic, a sense for pancreatic cancer would have to be. It would have to be inexpensive, rapid, simple, sensitive, selective, and minimally invasive. And then I found a database of over 8,000 different proteins that are found in your bloodstream when you have these cancers. And on the 4,000th try, I finally found one protein that could work called mesothelium. And it's just your ordinary round-of-the-mill type protein, unless you have pancreatic, ovarian, and lung cancer, in which case it's found at very high levels in your bloodstream. And that's when I was in my biology class, and I was reading something on what are called carbon nanotubes. They have these amazing properties. They're kind of like the superheroes of material science. And then there are these things called antibodies. You can imagine it like a lock and key. They only react with one specific protein, in this case, the mesothelin protein. And then I thought, maybe if I weave these um, antibodies into the network of nanotubes, then I'll have a network that only reacts with one specific protein and thus indicate the presence of pancreatic cancer. You were reading this stuff in your biology class. You got in trouble for that, right? Yeah, yeah, I actually got in a lot of trouble for it. Um, my teacher, she snatched that article away from me, then to put it through the paper shredder, and eventually I begged her to get it back, and eventually I did get it back, fortunately. I have not talked to her since, but it was worth it. It was definitely worth it. You had this 
idea. So tell me, how did you figure out what to do with it? Uh, well, then I realized, hey, I might need a lab for this. So essentially, after doing a bunch of background research, I then typed up a procedure, a materials list, a timeline, and a budget. And I sent it to 200 different labs at Johns Hopkins University and the National Institutes of Health, essentially asking, hey, can I work in your lab and do this work? And I got 199 rejections out of those 200 emails. And I realized professors are not nearly as nice as they look in their profile picture. <laughs> Well, at least they sent you a rejection letter. They didn't ignore No, some, some people did ignore me. Oh, so, yeah. And then um, finally one Dr. Aaron Badmaicha finally said, okay, I'll take you into my lab. I go in for this big interview with him. And an hour later, after being interrogated by all the PhDs in his lab, I finally got the lab space I needed and started working. How much time did you spend working on that as a volunteer in that lab? I spent seven um, months of constant work like every day after school I would go in and stay sometimes until 2.30 in the morning so it was pretty intense then but eventually I got there and I ended up with that one small paper sensor that cost three cents and takes five minutes to run. I wasn't surprised it worked I was just surprised by how well it worked. So where are you at with all of this now? So currently I hold the international patent on this technology and what's happening is that in the next few months I'm going to be brokering this deal with these large biotech companies in order to have it on the market as soon as possible to save as many lives as possible. You need it to be published in a peer-reviewed journal. How far are you from that? So I'm actually typing up the transcript for the journal and I'm going to be probably publishing in a public library of science since I'm a huge advocate of open access. When do you have a publication date? No, so I'm finishing the transcript to submit. And then it goes through peer review, and then it gets determined if it's going to be published or not. Now, what did you test it on? First, what I did is I first did what's called an in vitro study. I just spiked blood samples with mesothelon. Then what happened is I moved into mice. There were xenografted things. And then I did 100 patient samples. And so that's my data set right now. I've seen people call you... The Thomas Edison of our age. What do you think when you when you read things like that or hear them? Oh, uh, when I read and hear those, I'm just like, wow, those are some pretty big shoes to fill. So, it will be it will be interesting, and hopefully, I can live up to expectations. And you're pretty famous for uh, a guy your age. How does that feel? You're smiling. You're laughing. It's it's pretty crazy. I mean, like. Right after this, I'm headed down to the White House to accept this award as a champion of change in open science. And so it's just crazy the experiences I'm having and the people I'm meeting. It's just so exciting. Okay, Jack, thanks a lot. Thank you. We'll be sure to keep you updated on the test and Jack's incredible story as it progresses. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. After the break, how to reconcile science and religion. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. By day, he's the CEO of Canada's largest aerospace company, but by night, he seeks to reconcile science and religion. Vancouver's Daniel Friedman was back at Idea City for a second year with his latest work, connecting the dots between these two opposing worldviews when it comes to human origins. This builds on his earlier research, which found a formula to bring together the theory of evolution and Bible stories about the origins of life on Earth. In science, we have a pretty clear timeline of everything that happened, starting 13.7 billion years ago and culminating today, or 200,000 years ago, with humans. 
And in the Bible, we also have a timeline, but it's a six-day timeline, and it's less than 6,000 years ago. So we have a huge discrepancy. And what made you think that these two seemingly opposing ways of looking at the world could be reconciled? Well, actually, I read a statement in the Jewish scriptures that said that the Bible is a blueprint for creation. So if it is a blueprint, it's got to be an exact match. It's not stories, it's not approximate, it's got to be an exact match. And a blueprint doesn't make any sense until we figure out the scale. It says, you know, one inch is eight feet for your house, for example. As soon as you do that, then everything matches. So what was missing was the scale. What is a creation day? In the Bible, uh, there's a very exact timeline for when things happened in the creation story. Take us through that a bit. Okay, that's correct. So we're probably all familiar with uh, Genesis, where we have, you know, what happened in every day. And, but that's what happened in a day. That's not too accurate. But there's many other sources that go into quite a bit of detail as to what happened during the day. For example, in day six, where a lot of things happen, we have sources that tell us what happened every hour. My favorite is Adam's sin, which is given to the second, to be uh, 3 o'clock on Friday. Not 2.59, not 3.01, 3 o'clock, sharp. So you took all this together and you came up with a formula. Right. The first thing I did is I lined up all the events on a timeline from the biblical references, but they were all on a, on a six-day timeline less than 6,000 years ago. And then the question is, what's the scale factor? What, what is a creation day? How do you convert a creation day to a human time day? And if you do that, then you can line things up. So I went looking in the sources for what a creation day might be and discovered that it was incredibly simple. A creation day is 7,000 times 1,000 times 365. That works out to be two and a half billion years. God keeps time very different than humans. In fact, in Psalms 94, I think, 90.4, it tells us that one divine day or one day for God is a thousand of our years. So that's where the thousand came from and that's where the 365 came from because I had to convert from days to years. So that's two of the three numbers. The third number, the 7,000, is a bit more complicated. Every seven in the Bible comes with multiplied by seven. So you have a, a sabbatical cycle of seven years for the land, but the Jubilee is seven times seven, 49, 50th. And all of these sevens to be completed are seven times seven, seven times seven. So there has to be seven of these 7,000 cycles. And if we're in one of those cycles now, there must have been six before us. And there were six creation days. So I figured that each day was one of those cycles. So each day was 7,000 God years, and each God day is 1,000 of our years. So you get 7,000 times 1,000 times the number of days in the year, 365. And it magically works. It works unbelievable. I mean, it works to the last decimal place. If you look at the beginning of day five, 6 a.m. day five, it says let the waters team. That is the first life situation. It's a microscopic life because later in day five it says he made, he made sea creatures and so on. And when we look in the fossil record at the earliest microscopic life in the oceans, it's around three and a half billion years ago. And so on with 20 events. Plants, animals, even the extinction of dinosaurs. Humans, they match. And then the surprise to me was that when I did this, I actually got enlightened about science from the Bible. That I wasn't expecting. And are you a believer, if I may ask? Yes, I was before I started this, but I still am. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Thank you.
I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. This week, we said goodbye to Slim Whitman, an American country singer who was far more successful around the world than he was in his home nation. In just a moment, we'll hear a recording of his that once held the record for the most consecutive weeks at the top of the UK charts. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. It's time for your international arts datebook tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. In New York City, The Explorers Club is a new comedy from Tony-nominated writer Nell Benjamin of Legally Blonde fame. It's playing at the City Center Stage One and is set in 1879 London when the president of an all-male club stirs up controversy when he wants to admit a woman. In Los Angeles, a new sculpturalism, contemporary architecture from Southern California, examines the work of more than 30 major and emerging architects of the last 25 years. The exhibit is at the Museum of Contemporary Art. To London, England, where ballroom has been reinvented. Burn the Floor takes the audience on a journey through the passionate drama of dance. It's on until the end of the month at Shaftesbury Theatre. And in Italy, Daniel Barenboim is conducting all four of Wagner's Ring operas at La Scala. The last time the Ring was performed in a single week at La Scala was 1938. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. When I'm calling you That's Slim Whitman, the great American country singer who passed away this week at the age of 90. He was best known for his operatic tenor voice that often broke out into a yodel. In fact, some of Whitman's biggest hits like Indian Love Call and Rosemary come from operettas, and his yodeling was so famous that it was featured in the film Mars Attacks as the secret weapon that killed the aliens. Slim Whitman was once dubbed America's favorite folk singer, but he was actually far more popular in Europe. His 1955 version of Rosemary held the record for the longest reigning number one single in the UK until Brian Adams broke the record in 1991. And he was voted the top international artist four different years in a UK music poll. His career spanned some six decades, during which he recorded more than 65 albums and sold millions of records worldwide. Right now, we'll hear Slim Whitman and his record-setting hit, Rosemary. Oh, Rosemary, Rosemary, oh, Rosemary, I love you. Choose you 
That was country singer Slim Whitman with Rosemary, a song that spent a record-setting 11 weeks at the top of the UK charts in 1955. Whitman passed away this week at the age of 90. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Please come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Nyman. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program director, John Bandrill. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. Home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air and The Garden Show.